change your attitude, it changes your behavior pattern. And then you go on into some action. And we must continue to follow the dictates of our conscience, even if that means breaking unjust laws. What do you call second-class citizenship? Why, that's colonization. Second-class citizenship is nothing but 20th century slavery. And I do not plan to cooperate with evil at any it's point. It's time today for us to start doing some standing and some fighting to back that up. Yeah, I don't know if y'all felt that like I did, man. It was coming in like I'm on my side listening to it, man. And it was really beating in that track. I like that. Yeah, it was pretty good. I, I like that. My boy, Kazna, throwing it down um, on the beat. You know what I'm saying? I like yeah. that. Yeah, he's doing the music for the intro for anybody who is interested in knowing. If we ever change out the intro, we'll let you know. But for now, we're using that same one rocking out. But this is the fifth episode of the Martin Times Malcolm podcast, guys. Welcome. What's going on, Shaka? What's going on, AD? Peace. Oh, what's good? What's good? What's good? Blessing above ground. Yes, it is. Every day, indeed, is a blessing to be above above ground, man. And um, I'm really happy to have you guys here with us today. We're going to have some good things to talk about, some fun things to talk about. But we're going to try to keep it good, man. Um. One of the things we're going to go straight into on the word on the street, man, is uh, education at home. A lot of students, a lot of people, kids, some of you guys have kids or are getting educated at home right now. And uh, due to the pandemic, uh, it stands to limit our children's education emotionally and socially. I was just wondering about what you guys think about the uh, emotional and social intelligence of the kids out there due to the pandemic learning from home. I'll definitely start with that one. Um, being an art teacher um, in D.C., I see over 200 children um, in a week, you know, at least 200 children. And, you know, a lot of them have issues like with Internet at home. You know what I'm saying? Like not their fault. Right. It's like they just might not have Internet at home or, you know, have a bad connection. A lot of these kids uh, might get like what are those things called that? Uh, what are those things called that you can put in your house and you can get the internet off of it? I forgot what they call it. It's something small. Uh-huh. Router. Say uh, modem or like the setup mo- router. Wi Fi router, Wi Fi modem and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. they've been giving those out, but those things don't work. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, or it might not like it might not support the uh the family's uh internet issues. And so you'll have some kids that when it's time for them to talk, they're lagging, you know. And then it's even worse when a teacher's in that situation where the teacher has, you know, um, lagging issues on their on their uh, Zoom. And then you can't hear what the teacher's saying. You can't hear what the student's saying. I know I get tired of that shit. I'd be like, look, put in the put in the chat. Right. Like, just put whatever you're saying in the chat, because it's like everybody's listening to. It. If I'm asking, if I'm, we're doing a lesson on art on colors or something like that. And all your oh man, like two minutes. Put it in the chat. Don't. I don't care. Oh man, second grade. That sucks. Mommy, daddy, write it in the chat. Nobody want to hear that. Like you know, because <laughs> it makes everybody feel off. And if you're the teacher and that's happening with you, you got automatically got students logging off. Boom, boom, boom. I'm done. You know, a lot of kids. Um, <laughs> Google Classroom situation where like you're sending out you're sending out assignments almost like it's college. It's like 
they get hit with new assignments every day from all of their classes. So it becomes overwhelming because it's not like I'm in the class and I could be the teacher's pet and or the teacher knows me, teacher understands what I'm trying to know. If you didn't turn in your assignment, you got an F. And so that puts a lot of kids who, who are used to that traditional classroom at a disadvantage. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, I, I myself, um, I'm a former educator. Um, but, you know, prior to that, I was a private tutor uh, for several years. I started out tutoring through church and then, I, you know, had some students that I individually worked with, mostly middle school, high school. And the one thing that even before this pandemic, I noticed that was just a stark difference. And I, I, I was blessed that, you know, all of the schools that I went to were magnet schools. So there was an emphasis on academic excellence. Um, the standards were higher. You know, whereas like most of the schools, I went to public school, but most of the schools in my district, a 90 was an A. All the schools I went to, a 95 was an A. You got a 94, it's a B, a high B. Mm -hmm. but, but there was an emphasis, and they didn't call it that at that time, but what I've come to learn now and what, how they've kind of rebranded that approach to education is uh, you see it a lot in uh, STEM schools where it's like focused on science and mathematics. And there's a specific emphasis on mastery. Right. Um, and the STEM school uh, here in Columbus, Ohio, I went, I had the opportunity to go to a graduation because one of the students, uh, their graduating class, I believe it was 2017, was a girl that, you know, I grew up with her mom. You know, it, I was tutoring her in chemistry her senior year. So I got to go to her graduation. Uh, our Congress, one of our Congress representatives, Joyce Beatty, um, who, you know, is pretty prominent even in the the black caucus you know she's one of the prominent black democrats in congress um she spoke at their graduation and she talked about like how that school was established as um a model for getting back to mastery so one of the things that impressed me was you know when as the kids are walking across stage they all had powerpoint slides and not only did it say you know where they were had declared they were going to school but i was more by the majors. It was a lot of research majors, you know, like when we were in school, these would be people that were biology majors, mm -hmm. or, you know, whereas research professions, you know, right. physics, uh, psychology, et cetera. And um, the emphasis in that school was on mastery. So mastery is the way they understood it. And the way that I learned, I realized like that was how we were taught, is you don't really know a concept until you're able to teach somebody else that concept. So, exactly. so the pattern that um, you know, with and you hear a lot of teachers talk about standardized testing and how they've increased it and how that is taken away from the learning experience overall because teachers are, you know, measured by their job performance as to how well these students can pass these tests. Well, well there's, there's a difference between being able to pass the test. Like, you can pass a test without actually having mastered the concept. Well, that's the reason why I'm yeah. uh, being in a school environment online. Um, I kind of think that uh, there always is bad and good to some. And, you know, I think that to a certain extent, um, there are some students that are going to excel in an environment where they're able to study on their own in their own environment. Uh, but there's going to be some that would fail. Um, and so that was the reason why I think about it, because, you know, the social aspect of life. Um, is a is a big thing that we miss out on when we think about school and uh, the the emotional aspect of life like uh, is also something 
that we miss out on uh, going through school. Uh, so the fact that our students are not going to in, uh, in have some of that experience for uh, a, a potential year or potentially two years in some cases, uh, that could stand to have a big effect, right? Yeah, I want to say, like, it's been kind of a flip, right? So, like, the students that um, uh, have issues with traditional school, sitting down, listening to a teacher talking, tend to do better in a virtual uh, learning environment. Like, the kids that I was, like, sending to the principal office every day are getting A's in my class. You know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> <they> could, <laughs> I don't know how. It's like they could. They less could, distractions. Less distractions, um, more focused um, energy because it's like I could I could press mute, right? I could just watch whatever he's doing and just do whatever he's doing versus like I got to sit and listen to everything that he's saying, right? And then also some of the kids are getting a lot of help at home, right? Like I've had to tell some of my parents like stop drawing for your kids, like <laughs> They can't make a square. That's that they wouldn't be able to make a square in school. They're like drawing you know, for the kids, right? <laughs> drawing for the Shapes. kids. But it's not just in art. That's in art. Man. This is a perfect square, every, son. Every single uh, uh, subject, science, ELA, and then getting it wrong. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, like if you're gonna help them, at least help them with the right answers. Like, you know what I mean? And that's what I'm saying. Like some of our parents aren't equipped to like even deal with like, they're so far removed from school and then trying to help their kids in a virtual environment has even got them stressed too. So it's like, everybody's kind of stressed out. I can only imagine. That would have me stressed out. I mean, uh, and you as a, a teacher and a parent uh, have to have a standard for your own students, I'm sure as far as their learning at home. What do you have as far as some of the ways that you make sure that they keep their your uh, learning going? If they're learning from home, well, if they're learning from, I like to do more interactive stuff. Like this past uh, quarter, we did um, more like graphic design type stuff. So we would have like logo design, um, entrepreneurship. Uh, uh, they would have assignments around entrepreneurship. So they have to choose some sort of market they want to get into, and then they would have to do a, a business plan and then create a logo to go uh, to go along with it. And so a lot of kids really got into that. I like that. Right? Because it was something that was real world for them. It's applicable. There's something it's they can actually have to do with as adults. Exactly. Yeah. And with middle schoolers, that's really what you want to give them. You want to give them kind of like a, a taste of what adults do. So like whatever type of like art form we're dealing with, they're getting kind of a, a mini collegiate version of it. Right? That's kind of what you want to do with, with older kids. Because other than that, you're going to lose them. They ain't, they, they ain't got to care. And you got to keep them accountable. So it's like with Google Classroom, you can put all the assignments out there. They can get them. They can do them. Send it back to you. You can see them. Give them grades right then and there. But some of the kids have issues with like, like they're not tech savvy. Some kids are very tech savvy. That's all they do all day. Some kids aren't so tech savvy. And the kids who are like more traditional classroom aren't getting the internet stuff. How to copy and paste. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? Little shit like that. Like, how do I copy and paste it? The one main concern that I have is I do think that there's still something to be seen. Now, you know, the way that we were taught in school, there's a lot to, there was a lot that could have been improved. You know, I, I, like I said, I was blessed to go to, you know, pretty good schools academically, you know. They, but I, again, 
I think that was more based on the culture that was established and the principles that those schools were founded on. And so it was like, you know, right. like they say like a rising tide lift all boats. Like I, it, I, or, or probably the average student had went to a different school. I may not have done as well, but when you go to a school where everybody is, you know, uh, held to a higher standard, right. um, then, then on average, you know, the average C student at one school might be a B student at that school because it's cool to excel academically. And that's the reason why I'm saying that that's, that concept is definitely missing from the uh, child education for this year, I know, for the people who weren't able to attend school at a place of learning. So we have yet to learn and see what that effect will be, man. But, but we haven't even talked about the social aspect, which I think is, you know, the results of that we may not even know for another right. 10, 20 years. Because if you think about it, that's already happening. Like, I see a clear difference between, you know, the generation of teenagers now. And again, Shaka, you could probably also speak to this as well. But attention span, you want to talk about TikTok or, you know, the, the, the influence of social media and how it's affected, uh, you know, kids in school and the social aspect, the social development, a lot of kids are uncomfortable having a conversation with a complete stranger. You know, if you put them in a room, you take away cell phone or tablet or laptop. And I've also seen, you know, I, I worked for a year um, in a school environment where, you know, it was basically students with, uh, you know, a variety of special needs, but you know, some of them were on a spectrum, some of it was more behavioral, but their learning was completely virtual. You know, they're in a classroom with other kids, but it's only five or six kids in the class, and they all have laptops, and they're on those laptops all day. Wow. I never uh, knew. And it's, it's really yes. doing something to them. Like, it's hurting. Their, like, I had a conversation with my kids this past Friday, right? I was like, with my student, I was like, so, because only like 12 of them showed up. And, you know, I'm not used to that. I got a class of like 25 kids, right? And like 12 of them showed up. And I was like, so what's going on? Like, what, why are you guys at me? You know what I mean? Like, like, am I boring you guys? Or is it like something with the internet? Or what, what's really going on? So a lot of them was like, you know, our eyes hurt. Like, <laughs> it was like, my eyes hurt. Screen time, yeah. Screen time, my, my back hurts sitting down this long is just un impossible some oh kids my are God, so that's terrible that's terrible Damn. i mean it's bad for us as adults i mean uh, but you know even though a lot of people are working right. from home now it's been proven that you know if you go to a desk job and you sit at your desk for eight hours a day that's going to eventually affect your posture that's what I'm saying. Your overall mental health your physical yeah. health overall all of those things so to so to expect a child to function and God forbid excel and and maximize their potential in that type of learning environment, um, you know. I, in just my opinion, the best teachers that I had were always able to uh, flourish when it was like, like you, they were able to take you outside of the classroom and show you some shit that that's not gonna happen. Word. But <laughs> you, but you're right. You're right. But but, but that. That is an inherent part of learning is being able to not just see it on a chalkboard or on a tablet screen, but actually go out and 
you know, if you're talking about biology, plant some plant some seeds and talk about photosynthesis and the process of the water cycle. Like when kids are able to see that in in action in real time, it makes it more concrete and tangible to whereas you were just looking at it on a computer screen, it's just a graphic. And eventually all that shit starts to look the same. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then there's other kids that I saw that would get through all of their assignments, you know, in less than half of the school day. So what are they doing the other half of the school day? Well, the, if you finish your work early, you know, you get to go to the gym with Mr. Adam for extra gym time. You, we got to play pickup basketball for two hours. You know, like, it, but it was like a reward. So what right. that, you know, what that taught some kids to do was just speed through everything, get a C, you know, get get a passing grade so that they can go straight to the gym. Right. You know, but which now, is not which is nowhere close to mastery or understanding a concept. Right. But like nowadays, um, on the vir- on the virtual learning tip, like some kids will be sitting there playing their game, like while, while in class. So like while in class, right. they'll be sitting sitting there playing their game, right? And and their teacher's expectation might be, I need you to have your camera on, but that doesn't mean that I'm listening to what you're saying. And then sometimes they don't even have their cameras on. So you don't know, they just here to be on the attendance roll. You wow. know? What I mean? yeah. So it's like, it's so many different factors that are happening um, in the virtual learning space that, you know, I, th- I don't know how long we can, we can, you know, manage. I don't either. And I mean, that's the American education system as it is during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I'm glad that you brothers could ch- chat about it because I'm happy to know that uh, we graduated. We've already done with school. We're not even doing nothing. But for the kids, I mean, it's tough. And I can only imagine what it would be like um, some of the most formative years for the students that were, um, you know, I don't even think, excuse me, I, re- I even think about the fact that there's such a break. Like if you're in middle school or like uh, freshman year or even in your, uh, you know, fourth and fifth grade, depending on when you start to have transitions of your mind in different ways, to have a break where you miss your student friends and your teachers that you liked and all that stuff, just that environment can really be shattering. And I can only imagine. Um, but yeah, man, it's, um, we go into the soapbox. Um, this is a topic that's probably going to be controversial to some, but it depends on how they look at it. Uh, as black men who stand to benefit from patriarchal systems at times, should we be prepared to dismantle these systems in fairness, uh, inclusiveness? I don't know for myself, uh, working in a corporate environment, um, there have been times where I've uh, felt proud to be, a, the, you know, the black man walking around with the suit on, looking clean and everything like that. And, um, you know, I just wanted to, uh, you know, reflect on those times when I think about this is like uh, the patriarchy that we see in the world that can be oppressive to everyone. Does the black man play a part in that patriarchal system? Under the Trump administration, I think that some black men, even though we may have understood that Trump isn't really for us, that we can use his ideology and his, uh, you know, his message to further our individual agenda. Black patriarchy in America has been around before Donald Trump. Right. Sure. Yeah. Dr. Martin Luther King participated in black male patriarchy. And right. Same thing with uh, Malcolm X participated in black male patriarchy. Sure. 
You know, like, so when we think about what black male patriarchy is, we got to look at all of our institutions, right? Right. The nation of Islam, without a doubt, is all about black male patriarchy, right? A lot of our churches are about black male patriarchy. Right. So when we talk about black male patriarchy, that's something that has, has been built and created, in my opinion, here in America. Now, in Africa, you have examples of black male patriarchy and black female matriarchy. So it doesn't mean, like in Africa, you can see both systems happen in all in the same place, maybe right down the street from each other, right? But in America, this is where like black male patriarchy has been born because we had the right to vote before women, right? Like black men had the right to vote before white women. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know what I'm saying? So like that gave us kind of a feeling of, oh, you know, at least our white male counterparts recognize their black males. The totem pole. Yeah, there's a totem pole, right? <laughs> yeah. So we got kind of messed up in thinking is that, like, although they put us second on that totem pole as far as getting a vote, we are always last on the totem pole socially, you know what I'm saying? Right. right there with black women. And so, like, you know, I think that it would behoove us to, like, try to break down some of these institutions are we our own enemies when we play into that? We could be. You look at Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby created a amazing black family, like not just show, but just experience throughout the years, right? Right. All of that torn asunder, like torn to pieces over like the stuff that he was doing, believing in that black male patriarchy type of mentality. I'll give you it's a true. more recent example. I give you a more recent example. If you look at a Steve Harvey, mm. um, and how he was able to transition from a stand-up comedian to more of like a, you know, a commentator, and and you know he he published Think Like a Man, which became a, a successful movie production, and you know even just that, if you just examine that concept on its face, you know he's encouraging. Right our sisters to be more like us, you know, to think more like us. That's patriarchy, you know, and, and, you know, we all love and appreciate Lori Harvey. She's nice to look at. Future. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? I, I see where you're going with this. I love Future. That's funny. Home, you know what I mean? But, you know, he's, he's a little toxic. Toxic you know, it's yeah. so funny it's fine. that they both are, are I, I'm not going to say it, but they're members of a group that kind of exposes like manhood as like one of their principles, right? And a lot of the stuff that ah, they- Oh, I didn't even make that connection. Wow. Right? Wow. I'm not saying no names, right? <laughs> when you see like what they do, the way that they act out, like, you know, when they're on the campuses and stuff like that. That's a part of the whole masculine, overly masculine yeah. type of uh, uh, mentality. You know what I'm saying? Right. And a lot of them participate in that. And right. So, yeah. No. So like, it's uh, it's interesting as we talk about these two guys mm -hmm. you know, and the connections that they had. You know, as far as like the way that they think. You know what I mean? And there's other examples as well. Um, I mean, I think uh, something that just jogged my memory on that is the uh the movie that's coming out the, the trailer uh the new spike film and i don't think spike directed it i know he's involved with the production 
but it's the new Nate Parker movie. This uh, the trailer just premiered this week. American Skin. Right. Um, and, and I was I was you know I I saw a lot of feedback from people we went to school with talking about his past and saying I'm never going to support somebody who was you know even though he was acquitted he was a rapist or whatever. Um, and uh, you know I personally. I enjoyed Birth of a Nation, but I can also accept that it was, was a flaw. There, there was some, there were some flaws with the execution, and just like when you go back and you look at the historical accuracy of that movie, there was definitely some things where he could have done it better. Um, but um, and even to the, more so to that point, like you know, I, I think that with just the whole cancel culture and where we are in 2020, like where we're willing to, you know, Nate Parker had an incident when he was in college. You know, it, he was it, it, it. The the tragedy of that whole situation is that yes, you know, the girl that accused him eventually later ended up committing suicide, and I think that adds another layer to it. Because uh, um, people get really triggered when his name comes up, and this brother hasn't really. He's not like Cosby, where he was going on speaking engagements, talking about how we need to pull our pants up and da 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 da. Like he's been, you know. Uh, he's a relative new face, right? You know, like just that one incident from however many years ago, people are still bringing it up, and you know you could talk about cancel culture and what that you know he's probably one of the earliest examples of that. We need to do that with all these white boys that get away with that type of stuff. I'm not saying that I'm not saying that like Nate um, Nate Park. What's his name? Nate Parker. Um, shouldn't have to deal with that type of criticism, which it should. Right. Also, be just as critical to focus Donald Trump, who's like grabbing by the pussy. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that, 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 that's something. You're the leader of the free world. So I think, yeah. I mean, the crazy thing about it is that uh, some of these systems are things that have been in place for years. I mean, like some of it gets instilled from religion. Some of it gets instilled from. Uh, the social culture, you know, for African Americans who came from slavery times, a lot of people who rubbed their elbows amongst the the, the criminal element of the the mobsters or people who were around the uh, politicians, you're going to see the way that other communities interact with their women and interact with the people in their communities. And you start to mimic some of those characteristics. And some of those characteristics were not the most uh, beneficial for our families to where we are today. So when it comes to some of these patriarchal systems that I'm talking about, uh, it does come to mind that, uh, you know, the Papa was a rolling stone comes to mind. But mm -hmm. at the same time, we have uh, uh, kids who grew up without their fathers due to women who had children out of wedlock or, you know, she was the mistress or, you know, you were the, the, the second, you know, uh, on the side chick, you know, and you had children with this man. So um, sometimes those things come in. But I think that it's time for us to start as man, men looking at these uh, systems that are playing in the, what, what hurts a lot of other people. See, if we want to look at it from that angle, though, right, right. I think that um, that's not something new, right? Like, that's not something new, men fathering. Um, children by different wives, different women, and stuff like that. That's definitely an African thing. Right. We got right. kind of caught up here in America um, as far as trying to figure out how to pair, 
like uh, like the way the Westerners do things with the way that we did things, I feel like that kind of became an issue. Like the difference is being straight up. Yeah, but like yeah, back yeah, that's the difference. It's like in Africa they were straight up. Like look, you my wife, you my wife. and and, and it, it was actual. <laughs> No, no, but look, it was a way of keeping the community together because you didn't have children that didn't have a father. All the children of the of the community had a father because the guy, <laughs> the guy that was coming to see mom was dead. Right. I'm saying, and so like that, that, that right there, that was a way of Africa trying to fix its like orphan population or like uh, children that are born out of wedlock. You know, what I'm saying men will have more than one wife, but you have to take care of that wife. I think right. so if you weren't a man of means, then you weren't even if you weren't in a position to be able to to yeah. adequately care for multiple you would yeah, you it wasn't even a thought. So you know, I I I'm just gonna say this. Y'all heard of Masego? He's a, a new artist, RB artist. He's got a little EP out, but there's one of my favorite songs right now is Polygamy <laughs> by Masego. I'm not saying I subscribe to that lifestyle, but I'm just saying I understand the point you were making about, you know, us as people trying to merge our concept of monogamy and, and, and like what uh, what a monogamous relationship looks like, which also existed historically in our and culture I, as well. But it, but like you so said, polygamy. Yeah, if you if you weren't a man of means. In, in stature, you didn't even have that to that choice to make. She didn't want it. Yeah, right. That's one two cards. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like that, it wouldn't even be a thought. You know what I'm saying? It would be sin actually, yeah. because then you're not only like not only can you not take care of yourself, you can't take care of like these right. women that you done brought on. You know what I'm saying? Uh, to help you. You know what I'm saying? And so. I think in America, we kind of got that type of idea mixed up. Like we still, in Africa, we've always believed in like monogamy, meaning like the, the man and the woman, like are, that's the union, right? Right. If you have somebody outside of that, usually the woman would choose, not even the man. So right. the man don't even choose like, oh, we need another woman in the house. It'd be the woman to say, we need right. another woman. House. It's very disrespectful as the man to say that because for the woman, how she gonna feel when she like, okay, you can say that you want a woman to help with these chores, but we really know why you saying that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So it had to come from her. Like, oh no, we need we need more women. I'll take care of the market, da 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 da. Versus the man, like, oh yeah, I want I want like that even service to uh kind of put men in a place of prominence and sometimes women don't benefit from those types of systems in some cases. So are those types of things that we need to be willing to dismantle in the future? Like if it's a situation. I don't think we should because it happens on a flip-flop um, in East Africa. So in East Africa, you have women who will have multiple husbands. You know what I'm saying? They will have multiple men that was the woman would be considered the uh, heir of the, the child's Fair life. enough. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? And so that type of lineage type of thing. Whereas like the man that she sleeps with or had the child with was just merely like the donor kind of. Like right. Mother is the the person that passes down the lineage and stuff. And so that also happens in Jamaica. So you find in Jamaica there are a lot of women who have more than one man, not necessarily husband, but more than one man is more about the woman's ability to take care of her kids and the man that she brings you know, will help her do that. 
you know, versus I'm under this man and he's telling me everything to do. And I'm not talking about like like Christian homes that, of course, had like difference. But like traditionally in Jamaica, that's how things have been, you know, as well. as the Ethiopia. I know that. Yeah, I know that. So, yeah, man, um, that makes me think about, you know, it's always going to bring about culture, man. Every time, you know, guys talk, I mean, it makes me think about culture. Um, but the next thing I wanted to ask as we get into the water cooler is, uh, do you guys think that it's still important for us to use the influence of sports and athleticism to influence life skills on our children? Or should we just pretty much, you know, uh, find other means and methods to instill those life skills? Personally, I think that students need to still learn or kids, young students, young people still need to learn uh, sports and athleticism because it does help with a lot of different values. It does help with a lot of things that you can grow into as you get older. So I personally do like that. But what do you guys think? Well, I think that um, it's important for our students to have certain skills early on. Um, I think that's for boys and girls. Like I think for boys, it helps build a certain self-esteem. It helps uh, teach them like team building skills, leadership skills, um, uh, uh, to let go of certain fears and things like that. Um, for girls, it does all of those things. Plus, it gives them something to like work towards. Because like girls during their high school years, like middle school, high school years, it's so important to put them in a sport. And right because like they can get into so many different things and so like to have girls who they can talk to like um unconditionally like or have like you know a, a free space to speak about this is what i'm going through da, 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 da. that helps girls out like later on in the future and it also like them being able to be in a sport takes a lot of their time away right so the time that they would spend trying to chase a boy be a <laughs> Or the time that your son would be chasing a girl. Chasing a girl. Because, because let's be real, I, like that definitely just came down my alley because that was something that I think was a guiding philosophy for my parents. It was, you know, with my brother and myself, um, they kept us busy. And, you know, as I got older, I later learned it was like, well, you know, they say like idle hands, you know, so... That's true, you know, though. Keep them involved in activities, and 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 to be fair, if you are so if you are a child that's you know rebellious, you're still gonna find the trouble uh, through you know like I, I played baseball growing up. There was kids that you know my dad was one of the coaches on the team, so I wasn't sneaking off in the woods during a break and going to smoke weed. But I know I had some teammates that did that shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, it, that's fine, you know what I mean. But but I think that the most uh, the, the 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 most beneficial thing for uh, and not specific to gender, boy or girl, is um, just being a part of uh, especially a team sport. I think is more important. Um, you, you know, there's individual sports, and, and obviously the benefits, even if you're in an individual sport like tennis or track track and field you know it, there's physical benefits when it comes to health and wellness that you will get from participating in those sports but i think just being a part of a team and a part of a group and especially right. like I, I like what you hit on with uh you know shaka about you know separate because i think it's more typical for boys to want to be you know boys get put in sports even if they're not athletic everybody if you played a sport there was one kid on your team 
that had no business being on the team. Like, right, right. you know, like they were scared, you know, they're very uncoordinated, awkward as hell. And it's like, you know, that's a that 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 can it, 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 it probably would be a struggle for their self-esteem. But it's still it's like you get out there and you try. It propelled them nonetheless, right? Because exactly, because they had to face that fear. They had to and, face that. And for girls, I think the biggest hurdle is, again, like, you know, the social. It's, it's a little bit more, uh, you know, as boys, like, we like we have to assert ourselves, and that's how you build your confidence, right? right? Like, you're selling something. With girls, I think that, you know, and this may be sexist, but I think the bigger benefit is being able to foster relationships with with different types of people that may not you may not otherwise be friends with or have anything in common, um, and you know just that I mostly formed that, that opinion. I I coached girls softball for one year. I grew up playing baseball, grew up playing basketball, like so all team sports. But it's a little different. I coached the girls soccer. Yeah, <laughs> speak on it, man. I speak on it. It's like it, they build certain assertiveness. Um, when they're playing the sport, because it's like, and, and not only that, thank you for checking my patriarchal mind, AD, because I did say like <laughs> the girl's busy, but no, it's the same thing with the boys too. Like, you know, um, keeping them like with with some sort of like goal in mind. I think yeah. whether boys or girls, you know, also teaching them sportsmanship too. Like, it teaches them sportsmanship how to lose. So yes. it's a lot of our kids these days don't know how to lose. You know Donald Trump never played no sports growing up. Because look at how he's acting right now. I'm sorry. Like, like you know what I mean? You're supposed to shake hands or you lose. You know what I mean? Good game. You got you got me this time, you know. But I'm going to come look, back in the offseason. I'm going to lift Did he not? He's run again in 2024. He's acting like a sore sport right now, right? <laughs> look, he's still shaking thinking hands at all after the game. You know he didn't We'll see, right? still think the game is happening. Like that's the crazy part about it. Like you still think the game is on. Like this guy's man, this guy could be going senile at this point, man. I'm gonna just let it let it be. As we move into the food for thought, though, man, uh, I think about uh, even more culture. Uh, I was reading about something um, in Japan that they do that helps them with their budgeting and staying consistent with practices that help them stay financially sound. Uh, Kakibo is a Japanese method of budgeting or saving money. Uh, it's a simple ledger system that is a part of their culture, but it educates their whole you know, country. Everybody that's a part of their you know, culture learns this Kakibo method, and it educates them on how to handle finances. Is that something that we should have in our culture? Well, I, th- I think we have, we, 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 first of all, yes. I think we need to create more things. But I don't think that our culture has stopped and we're, you know, we're, we're, we're avoid from like creating right. things, you know what I'm saying? But I think also if we wanted to dig into our culture, there's something in the Nigerian or Yoruba culture known as Susu is also practiced among like Ghana or Ghanaian folks um, and some African-Americans uh, here. So Susu is the concept of um, uh, putting in the pot, right? And being able to take out the pot when it's time. So mm-hmm. it's like, you give you give a certain amount each mm-hmm. month um, to a group a group you know not off the internet right yeah. it's like asking for a thousand dollars and they're gonna give you back two thousand dollars or they show you something on Instagram with a whole bunch of dollars yeah, that's, that's a Nigerian susu scam I'm just kidding nah, nah. <laughs> this is not a Nigerian susu. <laughs> I was thinking <Yeah>. it too. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, and, and gotta be very careful, you know what I mean? We've all got that Facebook messenger, like, you know right. what I mean? Just $1,200. Me and my wife, <laughs> we already got five, five Gs. Like, put in your $1,200 and it's that's a gifting rule. That's not Susu. So, like, Susu <laughs> is when a group, a community, so folks that you know, family members, it might be, like, uh, uh, brothers of an organization, family, that come together and say, okay, I'm putting in a certain amount every month. And then one of those people will receive that amount of the group like each month. So like whenever it's your turn, so my turn might be February or March, right? And I'll get all of the money that the people put in the pot. Now, every month I'm putting in the pot, right? Not even thinking about like, you know, who it's going to. I know it's going to, but I'm putting in the pot. But when it's time for me to get mine, all the money's going to go to me. And it's a way of uh, spreading business as well. Some folks do it with business. So it's like we might not be putting money in the pot, but we're coming to support your business this month. Right? So your business is the focus this month. Right? People had running numbers in the, uh, back in the day, and that became the lottery. But that was a form of uh, doing something similar where you would have uh, one person win but everybody put their money in the pot, but the winning was based on selection of a winning number. Um, And that was something that allowed for our communities to kind of benefit. And that actually was uh, taken from us. Uh, That actual uh, financial culture was uh, co-opted by the government and turned into the lottery of a country. (laughs) So that's crazy, right? Like my great grandmother used to be a numbers runner, you know what I'm saying? And like back in the day, running numbers was just a thing. That was a part of everyday thing, whether it's like, you know, dreams. I dreamed the seven five two. You know, like like that's a part of black culture. Specifically numbers too, like like you just said. What numbers like um I saw this number. Uh, this number I had a dream about, right? I got my homeboy, Mr. Wayne, he played the numbers every single day. If it's your birthday, he playing that number. If it's his mother's birthday, he's playing that. You know what I'm saying? Like, they used to be a big part of our culture. And, like, we lost it to the lottery. And it also made, like, millionaires overnight. Like, believe it or not. Like, a lot of our black wealth was built during the 20s, during that, like, time of uh, the numbers. Because it was folks who were becoming thousandaires overnight. You know what I'm saying? Just by their number hit. You know what I mean? So, like... I mean, the thing... The, the the thing that that just reminded me of that I think the main difference between now because yes the lottery co-opted that but um what I see is a bigger hurdle for for us as a people in order to because when you talk about the philosophy you know that they're using in Japan what it sounds like is two things uh, financial literacy financial literacy was jumped out at it to me and how it's ingrained into the culture and how it's passed down from generation to generation. And then also group economics. So desegregation um, mm. has a lot to do with, um, you know, because even in cities like, you know, there's, the, I, I feel like the numbers game was like something that was more unique to like urban metropolis, you know, like larger cities where you have large populations of folks. Right, you know, right. like I don't really know that you know. My, my parents are both from the South. You know, Jim Crow grew up in the Jim Crow South. 
I don't know that they were exposed to people that was running numbers because they everybody spread out on farms, right? Right. But but even in those areas, like people shoot dice. Or people, you know, they had, you know, whatever. But it was gambling like, houses. The, yeah, gambling houses or poker, whatever, you know. But the group economics aspect of uh, uh, is what we've lost, you know. And, um, you know, we've all heard that phrase, the white man's ice is colder. You know, you could talk about how that relates to black businesses doing business with each other or functioning in a community collaboratively. You could talk about how some of us, you know, as soon as we got our became thousandaires, you know, we wanted to move out the hood and go as soon as we got the opportunity to go be around the white folks just to look like we made it. You can look we at the HBCU numbers. You can yeah. look at numbers dwindling at HBCUs and HBCUs closing. Yeah. Our, the best, our, our best and brightest used to go to our HBCUs and now... They're going off to like Harvard, Yale, and good for them. But at the same time, it's like our HBCUs uh, are falling apart because of that. That's see, even true this. in sports. See, That's think even about true this. In sports. If you look at like the older generation of pro athletes, black, black professional athletes, a lot of the greatest black professional athletes when we were kids, we were growing up. A lot of them went to HBCUs. Doug, Doug Williams was the first black quarterback to start in a Super Bowl. He went to Grambling. You know what I mean? I can't name anybody that came out of Grambling that's been a top NFL player. And he was a backup. You know, the guy before him got hurt. But still, he was a backup quarterback on an NFL team that was good. You know, like, he earned that spot. Uh, uh, you know, and there's countless other examples. I think Jerry Rice and, and probably a few others went to HBCUs. You know, Steve McNair is probably the last prominent one I can think of. You know, that's a piece. But, um, you know, that is something that you don't see it. Like, I can't think of any top athlete now in any professional sport that went to a HBCU. And that used to be the uh, the rule, not the exception. So but that's true. I mean, that's so, one of the reasons why I think about this. Uh, the money has increased in these universities. These top programs have increased, you know, their, their facilities and their marketing, you know, reach, you know, as a some as a young athlete, like you're gonna go where you have the best opportunity to get exposure. So, you know, our, our, you don't see HBCUs playing prime time football games on national TV um, unless it's the unless it's the Bayou Classic, and even that is in the middle of the afternoon. You know what I mean? So it's just like, um, I think that's the biggest uh, factor is just like the desegregation and the decentraliz decentralization. Uh, that's the biggest hurdle for us as a community because, yeah, financial literacy is one aspect of it, but I think the other aspect of it is group economics um, and, and recycling the dollar that, that well, that's really the thing, that, that's the thing that you're losing when you lose the culture behind it because uh, if you lose the value of it, because you can still do that right now. Like, we have communities right now that have people in them where the only businesses that you're going to see are businesses that someone else owns to sell you a product that you probably don't need. And, uh, you know, we could go back to methods of having that. That's why I say that, you know, we have the opportunity. I like what Shaka said. He said the, the, our, our culture isn't dead yet because we still have an opportunity to influence what's going to happen tomorrow. And if we want to say that we want to influence a system that allows a, a, a young guy to learn how to take care of his finances before he goes to school, 
before he goes to college so that he doesn't have to depend on some type of educational system. Because I can guarantee you the other students that you're sitting next to that are not black, they might not be hearing that in school either. But if they're getting it, they're getting it from somewhere. And if we're not giving it to them, then that's the reason why we're the ones that wake up one day and say, oh, we didn't learn this in school. Why did we not learn this in school? And it's like, well, you know, school is an edited, you know, system and it can only teach you so much. And right now, considering how we're in a system of uh, uh, online virtual learning becoming more prominent, there's going to be way less time for them to turn around and teach life skills and courses about how to take care of finances. So if we don't include something like that in the culture, where you're teaching, you know, five, seven, eight, nine-year-old kids, like whether it's using an abacus back in the day when people were using abacus, but like nowadays all the toys people use is like to play around with. It's not to learn, you know? I see like a lot of the games that they play and stuff like that on the internet, like math games and, and ELA games. A lot of that stuff is like really a waste of time. It, it, it doesn't, although it is helpful, it's great for somebody that's like ADHD, like I can't sit down, but... The traditional learning style, there's no, there's no comparing that. You know what I'm saying? Like the stuff that uh, kids get, like I think about my classroom years ago, like nine years ago, eight years ago, right? The type of stuff I was, the type of like, like uh, moral teachings and and social type of like learning that they got a chance to witness, going to the gallery, going to the Smithsonian to go see da 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 da. Like, I'm so tired of virtual tours. Like, I don't want to do another <laughs> of any museum. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I've seen it all. And it's like, you know, for the kids, they've seen it all. It's like getting out and, and smelling the air and, and seeing, I guess that's the issue, right? But like getting out and seeing things, you know, is, is missing. Them interacting with each other. That's what I'm happy. Like, Among Us, you know what Among Us is? You ever heard of Among Us? It's like a video game. That all the kids are playing now. Oh, I have heard about that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is is a way for them to socialize. You know wow. what I'm saying? Wow. Roblox. Roblox, Roblox. is another one that's real popular with the younger kids. And they just went public. They had an IPO earlier this year. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the one thing that when you were talking just now, it just like kind of jogged my memory is I think like the biggest hurdle for us is um, and this applies to like the education model, but just like culturally is, um, you know, seeing is just one of our senses, right? So I can go on a virtual tour and see the museum, but if I go to that museum, I'm getting that sense of sight, but I'm also hearing what it sounds like to be in that place. I'm also, you know, Possible touch. It, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know exactly. Like you're, you're just yeah, because you're, you're more, out you're out there's things for you to touch, buttons and all kind of stuff at those places. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and like sometimes those buttons might turn on a certain, like, I don't know, um, uh, uh, art a full experience. It's a full experience. It's not just I'm watching. And like a lot of our kids are probably going to need glasses. Like, you know, in the next few years because of the strain on their eyes. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's like it's a, it's a lot of strain on their eyes. Seeing all of these people, images coming out at you, stuff like that. I think about like for kindergarten, like, man, I teach pre-K. I teach four-year-olds. 
See, here's the thing, man. Here's the beauty of it. I think about the concept of where we're going in the future. And if school become a little bit less prominent, what's going to happen is art is going to become more prominent because academics and our art is usually something that balances itself out. Right. So when you have a student that's not doing well in school, as far as learning like math and science, the more hard, concrete, square things, mm -hmm. they're going to resort to the more rounded courses that allow them to learn and excel without having to be right. Like, you know, um, when you go to art, history, English, a lot of times those are the subjects that you can resort to when you're like, I don't want to go to the places where everybody who acts like they always write and be. And so um, one of the things that I think is we may be at the precipice, like at the beginning of a transition where the mind of the people that we're around is going to start becoming more like building art or creating content as opposed to trying to fit in to a mold that come from learning like more concrete things that the schools might be giving. Um, so I guess what I'm really saying is, are we getting closer to a point where we're about to enter a new renaissance where, you know, uh, people are really just more focused on experiencing life because now you don't have going to jobs. You can go out and experience their neighborhood. People who had to spend their Tuesday afternoon inside of a building now can spend their Tuesday afternoon in the park or at the beach or somewhere enjoying themselves because they're not at work. So I think that that's going to allow for a little bit more flow of mind and flow of heart and flow of creation. And uh, that's something that I'm, I'm, I'm seeing in my own self as I'm thinking about creating like this podcast. I'm like, now everybody got all this time off. You better create something. That's right. That's right. More entrepreneurship is happening. More independent businesses are happening. I know I didn't came up with like two businesses over this uh, pandemic, you know. But I think also it's going to be like once this is over, like family is also going to be a focus. Like family right. that's not in your like immediate home, maybe your your mother, grandmother, whoever, because you know a lot of folks have not been able to go to Thanksgivings and you know, the won't be able to go to Christmases or these other things. And like, you know, we as African-Americans, that's part of like our DNA is like connecting. Big, yeah. Right. It's a big thing, like connecting with your family, right? Like your whole family. And so a lot of us have been like uh, not able to do that and trying to, you know, save our mothers and, you know, our fathers um, um, because they're the ones that are most uh, um, uh, vulnerable. vulnerable. Where I was looking for yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, I think that's going to be a time for that, too. And I also agree with you as far as the art. Um, a lot of my students, although some of them aren't coming to class, they're still doing art. Right. Like they'll do art and hit me up like, Mr. Jones, what you think about this? What do you, you like this? You know what I'm saying? I'm like, well, you ain't been in class in like three weeks. Like, like what <laughs> <laughs> but you still doing stuff that, you know, because it's so much time on their hands, like after class, like they, they don't really have anything to do. They can't go outside and be with friends and be, you know, have to be inside. Same. I do, I do think there's a caveat to uh, that, that the idea that we're seeing a new renaissance in that because we're in a pandemic now, it's uh, more beneficial to people who are creators. Right. Uh, the the one the one caveat I would say is 
it's only beneficial to a certain type of artist. So I was just on one of my group chats yesterday talking with some friends of mine and we were, uh, you know, talking about how there's no live concerts. You know, like I, I was basically saying, like, that's one of my favorite things that I've done that, you know, as an adult, like I would do for leisure. You know, I go to at least three or four concerts a year, um, you know, with friends or just by myself sometimes. And um, that's one of the things that I probably miss the most about this pandemic. What I found is that certain artists or even like, you know, I'm a fan of battle rap, right? So like, like a lot of these battle rap events now, they just had Smack Volume 6 on tonight. I was watching a little bit of that. But they've had to scale down the number of people because of COVID restrictions, right? Right. So now a lot of battle rappers that were successful in the past when they were in these large venues with hundreds of people and they thrive off of the energy that they get from the crowd. They're really good at manipulating the crowd reaction and using that to enhance their performance are now struggling in this current climate where it's just a few people in the room or nobody in the room. It's just you and the person you're rapping against. And your bar. Uh, I, 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 I'll, <laughs> I'll cite my dude Kid Cudi. You know, like the, he's no, my like Ohio, Ohio brethren. You know, like yeah. Kid Cudi dropped that album yesterday. And I was like, man, it's like, Cudi still got it. Like, I was pleasantly surprised. Like, I was jamming that album all day yesterday. And then I thought about it. And I was like, well, Cudi, when he first came out over 10 years ago, he was like the first black emo rapper. You know what I mean? Like, before, mm. you know, it became, uh, you know, before uh, mm. a lot of people that came after him, you know, the only rapper that I could really think of that was as popular as him uh, was Eminem. You know, Eminem kind of made like emo and introverted style more popular in mainstream rap. And, and Cuddy, you know, influenced Kanye and, and also kind of was very influential in his own right. You know, before Cuddy, before Drake, there was Cuddy, you know, and he's rapping about depression and, you know, struggling with addiction and things like that. So when I thought about it, I was like, well, it makes sense that Cuddy would drop an album like this in the middle of the pandemic because his music was always pandemic music. Like, you know, he, his stuff that he was doing 12 years ago could have came out. Yeah. It would have been perfect. Everybody's inside the house right now. You know what I uh-huh. mean? Like, there's no big concerts and festivals right now. You know what I mean? So it, so his his style is catered to everybody just being in the house and listening to music on your earphones or whatever. But um, but yeah, like I, so I do think that certain art, certain types of art, are are better consumed. And I think it's important to remember we live in a, like a consumer society, right? right. So so certain, I was about art, to say, certain artists are going to thrive, and other artists are are going to struggle. Wait, all artists struggle. All yeah. artists struggle. It's our creativity that might be thriving, right? So even right. the musician, you might have time to now be in your studio and create some new new work right but you can't have yeah. concerts and, and like just like artists we can't have art shows and 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 you know like even a tattoo game like you know i'm a tattoo artist too you know what i'm saying so like tattooing is now different like tattooing with a mask i've never had to tattoo with no mask you know what i'm saying so now i got to put a mask on or decide not to tattoo at all because coughing too much you know what i'm saying like so like we have to like it it, it all artists are hurting as far as the business side, but when it comes to the creative side, we've had time to create more and make more 
you know, maybe on internet business has been booming because you're able to put your stuff out there for folks to listen. And that's what it is, but like when it comes to like the people, which artists love to be around the people, not just like on a screen, you know what I'm saying? Like that's, yeah. that's, and that's kind, of, kind of meant to me and I, I wasn't around or alive for that moment, but it felt like it meant it marked in uh, an abundance in, of art to consume uh, compared to the number of people or time that they had to consume it. Like people would consume, it, they could just consume, like they could read books. Like if you were interested in poetry or you like plays, you could just watch plays until you just couldn't watch, you just couldn't, if you didn't want to stop watching plays, like some of our aunties or some of our great grandparents or something like that, if they had something that they really liked. There was a time during the Renaissance where like if you like books, you could just read books all day and escape to reading books. And that was because somebody had enough time to write enough books that make you really want to write the books. And so, like, with, uh, uh, with the way that our current life is, like, I don't know if we would have been able to have a natural situation like that if it weren't for everybody slowing down. Even the celebs have had to slow down. And now you see them doing verses and see them doing stuff that you never would see them doing before. And that's because, like, they have time to think about creative things to do. And, I mean, in my mind, uh, I think that having an abundance of creativity, of, of, of creative pursuit, time for people to think about things, is going to increase the quality of life that we all enjoy. Because we could always be caught up in the hustle and bustle of the American way, the corporate machine or whatever industry we're a part of. But unless we slow all that down, we're never going to realize why we do all this in the first place. And um, I think that people starting to enjoy that and enjoy that is going to start making art become like when you enjoy life, art becomes a more prominent thing. You ever look in, you, you sit in your apartment, you've been going to work every day and you didn't even notice until you was at home every day now. You don't got no paintings on the wall. You got no, <laughs> got no art, nothing, no color in your house at all. And now you're like, man, I'm tripping. So some people are going to start looking at consuming art, buying it online. So it's like, I'm sitting in my house all the time and I got to do work and I'm sitting in this crazy corner with nothing to inspire me. Mm. Can I have something at home to inspire me? Versus people probably didn't even think about the value of art for years in our generation. Right, you know? that's a great point. That's a, you know the biggest indicator to me that uh, uh, the shift in and how we consume art is you know we all grew up in the cassette slash CD age now, right? And now we're in an era of streaming. You know we were all in college when high speed internet became a thing and and downloading. You know Napster, Napster hit my freshman year of college, you know, and, you know, you had these major groups suing, you know, because their music was getting illegally downloaded and pirated, right? So just earlier this week, they announced that Lil Wayne sold his licensing for his entire catalog for $100 million. I know for, I'm not going to say for a fact, but I'm pretty sure Lil Wayne's net worth was at least $100 million, right? Uh, before that, before that deal. And they said there was some legal stuff that he's going through facing that may have caused, forced him to do that before he really wanted to do it. But the first time I heard of somebody licensing out their catalog was when I found out that Michael Jackson owned the Beatles' entire catalog. I didn't even know that that was possible. You know, like the, you know Michael Jackson was savvy enough back in the 80s or 90s to purchase the licensing rights to the Beatles' entire catalog, right? But those deals, those type of deals were not common back then. Now, just in the past couple months, it, 
Lil Wayne is just the latest of of several, uh, many, many prominent, you know, recording artists, producers. The RZA sold his entire catalog to a company, and it's like one or two companies that they're buying up. And it, the idea is that they own all the licensing rights. So when it comes to streaming and YouTube, they make money off of all of that, and they have a hundred percent of their publishing, and they're selling their publishing and licensing rights for a lump sum, but. What that tells me is that the artists, especially in the music industry, you know, they were making hand money hand over foot for years. Right, you know, right. You had right. to have a physical copy. Your your overhead, your profit margin is a lot higher than when somebody's just paying ten dollars a month to stream your music unlimited as much as they want. So, um, so I think that now, you know, artists are trying to find it. Quincy Jones was another one that just he sold his entire catalog. No, you know? are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. Quincy Jones. Like, these are big names. Some of these people that are doing these deals are people that are not Lil Wayne, that have no reason Honestly, to be in a position where they even do that. And it makes you think about it, like, why would they do that? Like, They're pressed for cash, and the pandemic is having an opposite effect on them, meaning they're not able to get the type of like income coming in. I'm sorry, they're Nate. not though. They're not pressed for cash. It's just the way the that's it's it's a paradigm shift within the recording industry. And you know, like Kanye and several other people have talked about how the these deals in the record industry have been uneven for a long time. Just the way they do contracts. Uh, you know, Dave Chappelle, his stand up, he talked about how his stuff is being licensed out by Comedy Central. He doesn't own it, you know, but. Um, you know, now these people are finding new ways to to create other income streams because partially because of the pandemic and because of streaming and the shift in the industry. Um, so um, I think that's a big indicator in terms of where things are going and in, in terms of ownership for for creators, um, whether it be whether it be a recording artist or a visual artist, whatever your uh, whatever your form is. It's like Russ who decided to not. Submit, submit to any labels and he went completely independent and he went platinum on his first album and he made all the money off of and he's able to make all the money off of his shows all of that kind of stuff like that and so like he, you know he's motivated to make his uh art whatever art he puts out gets consumed by the consumer <laughs> benefits from it directly and he's not the first chance the chance was a similar before him but, but yes Definitely not the first one, but uh, the the thing is, when you're an artist, you want to be able to have people consume your art, but you want to have people consume your art and you be able to benefit from that. If somebody sees the value in your art, you don't want to be the last person to benefit from that value. Right. You want to get yours on the front end. So, yeah, that's what yeah. I, you know, when I think about uh, the Renaissance, what it also does, abundance creativity and abundance of output, it allows you to maintain ownership of it because you're constantly putting it out. If somebody thought that they owned you, you constantly put it out like Dave Chappelle. But nobody really owned Dave Chappelle because he's still out here putting out comedy, doing stand-up, making new material, and nobody owns his jokes. They may own Dave Chappelle's wow. name, but they don't own Dave Ch Dave Chappelle's jokes. They don't own, they don't his, own his brand. Yeah, he's still okay. his own brand. And but, so... But, content he did with that show he doesn't own it and even to the point where he can't even create a new show called Chappelle's show he would literally have to name it something different because they own the rights to the name 
still so, have so what Prince went through the same thing. Prince was through the same thing. Yeah, where, like he had the, um, they somebody I, I can't remember who it was, but like the artist. He sued who? Warner Brothers. He was signed Warner, to Warner Brothers. He was yeah. Warner yeah. Brothers. That's why he wrote like Slade on his yeah, face. He, he, he came back as the artist formerly known as known as because he was in a war with Warner Brothers over the rights to release new music. And uh, that's is something that Dave Chappelle highlighted in that, that stand-up special he just released where he was, you know, talking about it. But that also, you know, it's like the exact opposite. So now, you know, there a lot of these artists and creators, whether they're producers, rap, uh, musicians, whatever, they're getting the money up front because for years, the way the record, the rhythm, at least the way the recording industry was structured was, you know, you get an advance, right? right? So like for struggling artists, you know, you're just trying to increase your exposure. So the label had the ability to market your music to all the radio stations across the country and, and, and like expand your reach. But in return, what, uh, what you're getting or what you're giving them is, you know, part of your publishing, you know, where you don't even own the rights 100% to all your music. So then that label can sell your publishing to somebody else to use it in a commercial or for whatever they want to use it for. And you get $100,000 up front, but then your tour costs and your wardrobe and all of that stuff, your marketing budget comes out of that advance and they don't explain um, you know, a lot of people that are not in the position to be able to say, like, I'm going to turn down 100 G's because this deal isn't equitable. Like, I'm not getting uh, ownership. I'm not getting, you know, full license over to use my art how I want to use it. We fought a lot through that from the 90s. Here. You know, uh, you still see some of that, but the 90s were the heyday of people really selling their art to labels outright. Like, they were just trying to get signed by labels. They were waiting on a label to see the value, and labels had to complete leverage because if they saw the value in you, they could sign you, and whether or not other people saw the value in you, it didn't matter. Like, back then, you could drop a tape and be dope, but if a label wasn't behind it, behind it, people probably still wouldn't value that music because it what was it who was signed to it. Now you got independent artists and that lane is wide open. So we transition to a time where it's almost your choice if you choose to go to a label. And when I speak of artists and I speak of art, I'm not just talking about the music industry, even though I know a lot of our, you know, music, I mean our artists do become, you know, musicians. I still think of visual art as a very prominent thing. I still think as writing and poetry and spoken word and all of those things as viable pieces of uh, uh, aspects of art. And as those aspects grow, because honestly, some of the downturn of the music industry might help some of these artists go into other forms of art that are better suited for them because they may be a better poet. I even say Tupac was a better poet than anything. Um, and so um, I think I that, agree with that as we start getting in the better forms of you know art and actually being able to express ourselves from the natural way we want to express ourselves, that's the actual place we want to be. Not the place where we are like, who's going to consume our art, but it's more like, what do I want to create? You know, And when we get to that point, that's when we're actually at a place where I think we're really able to change the culture. Because if we're always trying to make art for the consumption mindset, we're always fulfilling the need that's there. But when the mindset of people actually go out and create, that's when they go and create what's going to be in the future. You know what I'm saying? And so I am more meaningful art. Exactly. Art is more meaningful versus like this is just for just to be consumed. Consumption. That, yeah. could be, that can be like visual art, musical art. You know what I'm saying? 
you got some folks that like they they'll put out an album because the dude the release date is coming up. You know what I'm saying? And they just got to put it out. You know, versus like okay, yeah, I, I, that happened with Chance just now. Like his manager sued, he uh, filed a lawsuit for three million because his last album that came out last year or earlier this year didn't perform up to expectation, and, and you know his former manager is suing him for three million dollars because of potential earnings that were lost because you know he was trying to get well he got married and right around the same time that he was releasing the album and his manager was like yeah like you're taking on too much but you know he had a wedding planned and he did all this and they said the album was rushed and it didn't really get executed the way they wanted to it was supposed to be his debut album it was a lot of anticipation Mm -hmm. behind it but it didn't perform that well sales wise and just critical critically compared to his previous work right and uh you know the other thing that i think of um with just this this whole topic is um going forward like what that means for the way people conduct conduct business because again it's a consumer society and and you know like a lot of these artists are exploited by these companies that have a lot of resources and connections you know, and, and they literally can make stars from scratch, you know, almost like you created in a lab. But, you know, that's for the purpose of being consumed to maximize profit. You have those. And there's always been that dichotomy between, you know, people that just do it for the love, for the art of creating something groundbreaking, something timeless, something classic, and people that are doing it for mass consumption. Right. Um, and I think it's important to sell it. It's important to distinguish that because, uh, especially now, um, you know, without these artists being able to tour and throw these huge stadium concerts where you can pack 50,000, however many thousand people into one place and they pay $50 per person, you know, like the millions and millions of dollars that are generated. That's what's really hurting these artists is the fact that they're that's not able to saying. But that's what I was saying. It's like, that's what's hurting these artists, in my opinion. Like, the tours are going. Yeah. They don't cancel out these concerts. And, like, they got bills. Like, yeah. artists, yeah. The, these artists have serious bills. Yes. Yeah. Like, now they're kind of strapped to just do, like, whatever. Like, sell off your catalog. That sounds crazy. For a hundred million dollars for Lil Wayne to sell it for a hundred million dollars, it sounds low, right? It sounds, sounds very like low. You get way more than that. That's what I said. Like, whoa, why a hundred million? But even to know that folks like Quincy Jones, whose work is timeless, yeah, like, you know, to hear to hear that he's selling off, you know, his rights or whatever, that sounds yeah, ownership. It makes me feel like I'm losing something. I don't even know the man. You know what I'm saying? You know what's funny about that is like is nobody talks because like yeah I, I I mean I pay attention to stuff like that but at the same time like Taylor Swift you know, they talk about I just heard them talk about it on the Joe Budden podcast but uh, Scooter Braun who you know is mostly known for discovering Justin Bieber and you know he's a big time promoter and uh, you know industry mover and shaker he purchased the rights to her like first five or six albums for a large sum of money. And she had no control over that happening. Like her label that she was on, they sold the rights to her music to him. He sold it to somebody else. And now 
you know, even though she's one of the biggest names in the music industry, she can either make new music and still still, still sell millions and own and have 100% ownership of that, or she can re-record her old material and re-release it and have ownership of that. But, you know, it's not just, it, like you said, like Quincy Jones, it, that's a name that's surprising. The difference is, is Wayne, you know, sold his for $100 million. People like Quincy and I think L.A. Reid did a similar deal or the RZA, you know, they're getting more like 200, 300 million for yeah. their catalogs. You know, if you have a 20 year career, if you have a career as long as Lil Wayne's, you know, like it, it, it that just kind of speaks to, uh, you know, like Wayne is a generational artist. There's very few people that have been had his influence and his longevity in music um, in our lifetime, especially in hip hop. But, um, you know, if you look at him versus a Jay-Z, that just shows you, you know, the difference between doing good business and doing smart business and doing business where you maybe are exploited because you trusted somebody too much that, you know, discovered you at an early age or, you know, you were just loyal, too loyal. Um, Comes back to when we uh, speak about the Renaissance, I think that. Uh, what we're seeing is a time for us to start realizing how to make art be the focus. You know, I think that, uh, you know, the consumption and the industry of the art, when, whether we're talking about music or whether we're talking about other forms of art that are consumed, uh, we have to start thinking about, you know, how we're actually going to be creating it. Because all things are forms of art. Even, you know, uh, what we're creating right here is a form of art. And you know, I appreciate you guys coming together to do it. And what it does is it allows us to create something that our kids can look at and people can look at in the future and get an idea of a story that we're telling and, and learn how to tell their story. That's the value in art. And as we start to learn how to make more of it and more people, not just famous celebs, but when the everyday, everyday person is creating that and telling their stories, we're going to actually start being able to change the culture because people who tell their stories are usually able to change the world because they change the world through those stories they tell. You know, so, you know, I encourage everyone out there to learn how to tell your story as we tell ours. Um, the story for MXM Radio, the Martin Times Mal Malcolm podcast, the story we like to tell is recapture the revolutionary and I appreciate you guys coming out tonight to talk about some good topics and as we expound upon them. Um, I think that one of the themes that comes through is you definitely want to have a, a, a good sense of education for the students out here. People who are out here in the world who are learning uh, virtually need to have some support. So do the teachers. Uh, we also need to think about having a better sense of educating our students at home in different ways that involve Un like things that are not just academic, but teaching them about art, teaching them about life skills and helping them get those things that they're not getting as the uh, pandemic still rages on. Uh, so, yeah, man, I want to give a chance to uh, let you, Shaka and AD, give a chance to um, say your pieces before we head out, man. Well, hey, man, uh, peace, love, light. This is Shaka, your resident hotel. How's your boy? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mic drop. Uh, I, I, you know, damn, you took my edge. Peace, 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 everybody. My name is Adam. The 
respectfully known as AD. And if Shaka is the resident hotep, I guess I'm the resident mainstream. Yeah, I ain't really that mainstream, but you know, um, uh, I'm a mixed bag. Both in us, right? That's yeah, what I'm, yeah, I'm a mixed bag. You know, I, sometimes I'm a hotep too. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes respectfully, I'm, uh, in respectfully. the board, you know. But uh, always good to chop it up with you, brothers, man. And I'm just uh, happy to uh, you know share my perspective and also learn uh, and, and gain insight through uh, hearing other perspectives. So uh, yeah, let's keep it going, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, man. Well, y'all out there, man, you know how to find us. It's Martin Times Malcolm, wherever you need to find us. Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Clubhouse, all the apps, the podcast apps, Apple, Spotify, everywhere. Don't make an excuse for not being able to find us. We've got a website, martintimesmalcolm.com. See you, peace. By any means necessary.